Welcome to the Leadership Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Jono White. I'm the founder and principal consultant of Clarity. We are an Australian-based consultancy that works with leaders around the world, and our passion is to invest in people to become everything they're meant to be in order to fill the world with healthy organizations that people love to work for and customers line up to buy from. The goal of this podcast is to invest in you and your leadership. If you're just joining us for the first time, then feel free to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there. The most popular being our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from around the world in all different sectors give their in-depth answers on leadership, what books they love, what they found most challenging, uh, the most meaningful stories, how they how they structure their time through the day. That's free, so go and check it out. And we'd love to interview you about your leadership. I believe you have advice from your experience, your context, and your life so far that is important and can help other leaders. It's also a great way to give back. It's free to get involved, and you can do so by going to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest, or just Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form that pops up. We have a free resource for you on our website. It's called Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook. It has interviews with 10 world-class leaders, and you can go to consultclarity.org. It's right at the top and get that today. Uh, we also have a daily email that we send out to over 15,000 leaders, and that email contains the highlights, our best content from our podcasts, our blog, uh, my book, uh, the books that we're loving that are out there about leadership, it's also the best way to get access to our masterclasses and workshops before anyone else. And there's also exclusive and limited uh, special options just for subscribers. And you can subscribe by going to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe. Now, my gift to you is to work incredibly hard to provide the best leadership content I can to invest in you and your leadership. So if you're finding our content helpful, if you find this podcast helpful, then your gift to me uh, could be this. If you, if you do find it helpful, then write a review or rate our content and make sure you subscribe or follow. I can't emphasize enough how helpful that is. It really does help us to get the word out there so we can invest in more leaders to become everything they're meant to be. It also means a lot to me personally when people like you and people in our community share our content on social media. So if you do that, then please do look for me, Jono White, to tag me and look to tag Clarity uh, on whatever platform you're on. And our team, including me, I, I'm always looking to see when people have mentioned us so that I can engage with you. And also we look at sharing content. So if you if you write something about something we've done, there's also a good chance we'll share that with our followers. So if you could do that, that is a massive, massive help as we try to invest in as many leaders as we can around the world. Last of all, you can check out my book about how to deal with difficult people even if you hate conflict. It's called Step Up or Step Out. It's available on Amazon. You can just look up Step Up or Step Out John O'White or you can go to store.consultclarity.org forward slash book and check it out there. I 
have coached leader after leader after leader, and in more than 50% of the sessions, this topic comes up. How do I deal with this person? I'm finding it really difficult, and, and I just want to find a way that doesn't blow up to do a really, just to have a difficult conversation, to lead them better. How do I do that? There's a three-step process that I outline in this book that I believe can help you. Okay, let's get into today's episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Today's guest is Michael Furtick. Michael is a serial entrepreneur and venture capitalist. Uh, He's the managing partner and founder of Ventures, among other things. Uh, But we'll let him talk more about that. Michael. Thank you, Jono. I'm glad to be on your podcast. So first of all, give us a snapshot of of what you do. I am an entrepreneur and investor. I'm kind of a classic Silicon Valley person in that way. I'm speaking to you right now from Palo Alto, California, and I've lived here for some time. I started my first venture-backed company when I was 19, when I was in college, and I'm now 43. So that's pretty much with only a few years of exception when I was in law school uh, and then clerking after law school. That's been my profession, working as an entrepreneur Uh, And then later, starting about six years ago, more and more as an investor in startups. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I love asking about people's stories, and I know listeners enjoy hearing it. So for you, let's start childhood. You know, when you were growing up, what were some of the moments or even themes from that season of your life that really shaped you into the person and leader you are today? I grew up mostly in my earliest years on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Um, Now it's a pretty fancy neighborhood, but New York in the late 70s and early 80s, even late 80s, was not as nice as it is now. There was a lot of crime, both petty crime and serious crime. There were hookers on my corner when I grew up. There were vials from drugs on the sidewalk and on the street next to the building in which I grew up. I remember that. And then New York got nicer and nicer over the years. And then the neighborhood I grew up in for the last number of years has been very fancy indeed. The neighborhood I grew up in um, had a lot of what you might call freewheeling personalities, academics, artists, intellectual people, And my father and mother had a life and a family that was consistent with that high-level impression. Mm -hmm. My father was a film director and made a living as a working artist. My mother was a psychotherapist. All the men in my family have been artists, mostly visual artists, working artists for, I think, four generations. And our life was a life in which we grew up in an apartment where, you know, people who you might imagine would be around that would show up for dinner or just hang around. 
actors or painters or musicians. My father was very enthusiastic about classical music in particular. And as I have looked back on it many times since on that upbringing, I've come to realize that a lot of what my father and mother did, even though one was an artist and one grew up more as a scientist, what they did in fact was very similar. Uh, they were professional listeners. They were professional observers and they were always listening for some moment of truth or some moment of bravery or courage when the person they were listening to would express himself or herself in a way that revealed something about themselves or about the world around them. <clears throat> and mm -hmm. they were always on the hunt for that true moment. My mother as a shrink, uh, someone would, she would listen for someone to say something true and revealing about himself or herself. And my father would listen for expressions from artists or non-artists to say something that sounded really true, to hit a true note, so to speak. And so they had a lot to say, my parents, but they were chiefly observers and people who were constantly training us as, a, as kids to listen for the moments of bravery and truth. And I think that um, in my life, if there's one thing that seems to be most enduring and true, it's that I am in the hunt all the time for people who are saying things that are brave and true mm -hmm. and who are hitting true notes. And by the way, I would say the same thing about myself that I'm at my best when I feel like I'm really telling something that's true and fully true. And not everyone gets to do that every day, including myself, but that's what I look for when I listen to, <laughs> to myself say certain things as well. So I think that that upbringing is important for me because mm -hmm. what it put a premium on, and there are other people who get the, 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 to this kind of place in other ways, I'm guessing, but what that put a premium on is guts. It put a premium on courage. And yeah. it put a premium on people who are willing to say something, and even if everyone else in the room was saying the opposite thing. And if they knew what they were saying to be true, or they had conviction that it was true, they would be unafraid. And mm -hmm. that has shaped a lot of how I feel and operate. And by the way, it can be a lonely way to, <laughs> way to live. <laughs> but you can find, as my mother and father found in each other, you can find people who value that. Uh, and yeah. that has been very important to me. I'm interested to hear that affects what you're looking for in a startup as an investor. It, it, that you choose to look past and, and the business um, numbers, or is that part of the story when you're interested in, in investing in a startup that you're looking for that truth and that courage, I guess, in the story and in the, in, in, maybe in the founders? It's extremely important question. And I want to answer it in two ways. First, looking for or, or prioritizing courage and guts informs how I invest. And then secondly, informs in which companies I invest. So let me start with the easier one, the how I invest. So what type of investments do I actually do? I didn't say this earlier. I am very focused on being your first investor. I call myself a first money investor. 
And I say first money because there are a lot of phrases that get used. I'm sure you and your listeners will have heard of seed stage or series A or pre-seed or friends and family or angel round or whatever other phrase that is used. And these are often suitcase terms that cover a lot of actual fact patterns. And what I try to say is first money because mm. it's <laughs> it's harder to misconstrue <laughs> first money means first money. It doesn't mean first institutional round, which some people try to convolute it into or first money after friends and family. I mean, actual first money. And <laughs> I just I wish like people that. would take that at face value. And so what does it mean? It means that I want to be in your very first financing. I'm very happy to be the first investor in the company or along the other first investors in the company, but it means first money. I want to be in the first financing event. And that's a high priority for me. It's something I'm pretty consistent about. And historically, I've also been a specialist in Silicon Valley companies and companies based in Israel, although I've been broadening my remit recently. So hmm. when you're a first money investor, there are almost not, there are almost never any numbers, right? So there's not a lot of stuff to go on traditional investor stuff. You can't put on your green eye shades and say, hi, your margins are growing and your revenue is growing. <laughs> yeah. I'm often meeting entrepreneurs when they have a PowerPoint or maybe they don't even have a PowerPoint yet, right? And so that uh, takes a certain amount of guts and bravery to have the conviction necessary to invest and often by myself when no one else is willing to go and invest in your company to invest in that company and say, yeah, I can see who I think you are and what the opportunity is. And even if you decide to change from this particular business plan or thought process about what you're going to do in business, I suspect that you are the kind of person whom I want to invest. And so there's a certain level mm -hmm. of kind of uh, perception that I would identify with the ability to kind of articulate something that sounds true or might require guts or does require guts. Let me say it more strongly, it does require guts. And that is unusual. There are many early stage investors. Um, a lot of early stage investors will tell you that there are very few early stage investors. That is false. There are many, 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 many early stage investors. But what they consider to be early stage is not what I consider to be early stage. So there are very few investors who are willing to go by themselves and first. And therefore, yeah, and by yeah. the way, maybe for good reason, maybe for good reason, but, but, but it certainly <laughs> requires guts. And so, and, but when it works, gee, you know, John, it really works because there are a lot of early stage investors who want to follow the companies that are proving that they have traction. So that's the first. The second thing is, yeah, man, all day, all I do <laughs> John, is look for, look for people who make up their own minds and they are mm -hmm. either, they're either making up their own minds about a business that has been unaddressed by others or has been abandoned by mm -hmm. others or an opportunity that has been poorly addressed by others or they have a style that is uh, very focused on certain elements of an opportunity or they see a, a way of prosecuting an opportunity that nobody else has before them or they see a totally new opportunity or a totally new technology that they can develop and they're not always successful they're not always right but they are very attractive in many ways to me and they can often attract mm -hmm. talent and others to their cause because they are saying something that is true and brave and whether they know it or not the vast majority of people are very drawn to guts 
and they are very attracted to courage. And it may take them a while to have the courage to be attracted to courage, but they are moved by courage. And so even beyond the courage it takes to start any type of company, as many of your listeners have done, to be any kind of leader, as many of your listeners will have been and are, to do something totally new from scratch and to do it in a way that's not a 1% incremental improvement on the last guy who's already successful. It's not a copycat of the other guy who's already successful. It's a new day thing that requires a certain kind of guts. Now, not everyone is drawn from the same cloth or cut the same way or looks the same. Lots of different ways to present and manifest courage. But underneath the hood, courage, I think, is much more important than grit. It's much more important than conviction. It's much more important than many types of intelligence. Um, and it's a rare and beautiful commodity. And I think that the, in the same way I am drawn to it, others whom you will need to recruit for your venture to make it successful because no one can do it alone will also be drawn to it. I, what I love about that answer and, and I love about how you operate, uh, Michael, is I get incredibly confused about the difference. I have um, my brother-in-law is um, uh, successful in um, sort of one of the sort of OGs around currency and is really involved in, in uh, some amazing ventures in cryptocurrency about the different funding stages things are at and i just glaze over and usually like i love this sort of stuff but i just it's getting it stages where and who's involved so i love that you've simplified that and i first money that's so i love that but also you've answered a question for me which is which i've often wondered which is okay in leadership who is i used to think vision was more important than who i used to but with the right vision, people second like get a really clear direction and then get people on the bus. Um, but I was really challenged by Jim Collins in some of his work where he was like, no, 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 get the right people on the bus and then work out where you're going. And I really wrestled with that and sort of was like, no, I don't, I, I, I hate that. And more and more I've realized, actually, you know what, I, I'm coming to um, really believe that if you can get the right people and that's why I love what you shared about your approach because it's like if I can find with that courage yes I'm also looking for a particular idea they're doing that is that is a fact they are and how they operate if I can if I can really nail that and come in as first money with that person that's going to like I can trust that that person's all attract other great people to them because of the very reason they attracted me to their idea. I think there's a lot of power to that. The Look, this conversation re reveals what so many conversations like this reveal. I'm sure you've had others on your podcast <clears throat> that a bit of this and a little bit of that to make it all work, right? So whether it's, you know, Jim Collins' view as you've cited it or to take the view that you, I think, used to have, I would probably locate that in my mind anyway with Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, who has said many times that he thinks the most important quality of a leader is, I don't think he calls it even vision. I think he just says setting the direction and making sure everyone knows where they're supposed to go. And then their mm. talent will help you get there in ways that surprise you. I'm sort of paraphrasing or summarizing. So all errors are mine, not his. Um, but, uh, you know, not necessarily 
committed to, to a certain vision of what vision is, but a certain vision of what a leader's job is to set direction. The, the effective leader will, will want to be both someone who is brave, but also someone and who could draw talent and retain talent, but also someone who can then set the direction. Even if sometimes the direction is wrong, you have opportunities to course correct. Everyone knows what every minute of the day should be spent pursuing because the boss has set the direction. I think that is an element of leadership, but it's a little bit, it's a little bit of that. The other thing I want to differentiate is what I think is courage versus charisma. Um, there are uh, many people who are courageous who are also charismatic, and there are people who are courageous who are not charismatic. And I think it's probably better to be both courageous and charismatic if you want to be a leader. But I tend to prefer mm. in many quarters of my life guts over charisma. I, there are mm. pro probably every importantly dishonest person I've encountered in Silicon Valley and probably every important, just importantly dishonest person you've read about in, in Silicon Valley. And I mean Silicon Valley, both proper Silicon Valley and the global Silicon Valley, right, um, is charismatic, but not necessarily courageous. Um, charisma can cover a certain level of gutlessness as well, right? There's a certain level of brazen deception or brazen uh, willingness to deceive that is not courageous it's just brazen and there are certain people who are charismatic who are not necessarily deceptive they just aren't necessarily brave either they're just attractive <laughs> temporarily but people figure out eventually <laughs> that they're being lied to or just that they're being led by someone who is unserious let's say even if not deceptive and so um the other thing i'll say about guts and i don't think we need to make too much of it but the other thing i'll say about guts is that it tends to be very powerful in the culture formation of an enterprise. And this is one thing I think you were getting at, which is yeah. that when you attract and retain talent, you want to attract and retain talent who are turned on by guts, right? They're not turned on by milk toast behavior or prevarication or by bold statements without bold follow-up. Um, they are drawn to guts because it is a more durable and substantive form of leadership quality. And so I think that's also uh, habit forming, it's culture forming. So I, I, I'm attracted to it. And, and, and by the way, I think that I want to emphasize people can get there in different ways. Remember, I got there, I think, being, being emphatic about courage, <clears throat> um, and not everyone can be brave in every moment of their lives, but on average, on balance being much more drawn to courage in those moments and people who have courage in the moments that matter. I got there around a dinner table, a metaphorical dinner, dinner table with an artist father and a psychotherapist mother. It's not like they were Marines, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. Or lumberjacks, right? <laughs> right. Or uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, volcanologists. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you true. can get there yeah, yeah. and understand the power of this wherever you come from, I think, uh, because because guts is somewhere something you find in every walk of life. It's something you find in every corner of the world. Um, but there's nothing yeah. like it. There's nothing that can topple a regime of tyranny except for guts. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And some people get there through faith and some people get there through other ways. But um, 
but it's uh, it's uh, it's very very powerful. It's a powerful medicine. Um, by the way, I want to tell a little anecdote. Can I tell an anecdote? Yeah, please do. I think I think you might enjoy um, enjoy telling hearing an anecdote, and it's about my first business. Do you want to hear about my very first business? <laughs> so. My very first business, I was in fourth grade. I don't know what the equivalent in Australia would be, but I, I guess I would have been about nine years old. Okay. Yeah. It'd be the same. Yeah. And uh, okay. And I, and I went to, uh, I went to a very fancy private school on the upper east side of Manhattan. And the upper east side of Manhattan has long been known as silk stocking. And it's been famous for, you know, years and decades and sent probably over a century, a uh, Butterfield eight, the John O'Hara novel, which was made into a movie with Marilyn Monroe was about this basic section of New York and the world, which was so ritzy. And the population of that private school was a very wealthy population, uh, except for some kids. And my family was not wealthy. And I, I sort of tested in, let's say, but I grew up in a neighborhood that wasn't very nice. And the on the Upper West Side, on the Upper East Side, which is very fancy, the school was on a side street, one of the numbered streets, you know, and it was between two avenues. And the avenue where we were picked up and dropped off or picked up for, for uh, on the bus line to go home was a very fancy avenue. And the one beyond it was on the other side of the school was somewhat fancy, but beyond that was the less fancy, not dangerous, but less fancy avenue that was already starting to feel like it was New York again. And there was a gap of time, maybe 15, 20 minutes, let's say, between the time you got out of school and the time you get picked up by the bus and there was traffic and stuff, so maybe 20, 25 minutes. And I would run down to the bodega on the not very nice avenue and buy a bunch of candy because I was the only kid who was brave enough to <laughs> go down there because I was with a bunch of rich kids who did not know how to walk <laughs> on the street by themselves. And in New York, and I'd go and buy a bunch of candy and I'd come back and I'd, <laughs> I'd sell it to all the rich kids on the bus line for a major markup. And that was my first sort of arbitrage <laughs> business. And it was a kind of a funny win-win because if I, I couldn't sell my inventory, I'd get to eat my own inventory, which was funny, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, that was that was my very first business. And it was a kind of a funny kind of guts, right? It's a nine-year-old version of guts in some sense. In some sense. There are more mm. there are more noble versions of nine-year-old guts as well. I'm sure we can all think of examples. But my first my actual own first business was built on my willingness to do what the other guy wasn't. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's such a great anecdote because it's like um, I much of, uh, yeah, so much of great leader is that story, but just with different variables, right? I love that. that every, I, you know, I could go and do that, but I'm, I'm scared because of you know, um, that street by myself. I haven't gone there before. And like, okay, I'll go and do it myself. I'll, and I do with these stories of from people's childhoods like that one because it's um i just love how entrepreneurial that is but i'm grateful you had no idea that you were showing such entrepreneurial like that's such an entrepreneurial thing to do and uh, and that's why i just love hearing hearing stories like that 
to ask you about Michael as we, as we chat about um, guts and, and, and you know, we talked about this before we clicked record for people uh, who, are, who are wondering, but about um, guts and, and how different, like, obviously that, but then you also mentioned faith and how that can play a part. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your faith and about uh, just generally about, about that, that, but then how, like, not only guts, but how that and your investing and your entrepreneurship. Thank you. Uh, so we did uh, we did talk about it before the recording started. And I want to begin by telling you the first words that I utter every morning when I wake up. Every single morning when I wake up, even if it's at 4 in the morning or 3 in the morning or at 6 in the morning, a more humane <laughs> hour, I say out loud, Quietly, but out loud. Which means, I give thanks before you, King, living and eternal, for you have returned within me my soul with compassion. Abundant, abundant is your faith or faithfulness. And it captures a very interesting, I believe, medieval Jewish idea, which is that your soul leaves your body and does something while you're sleeping and then comes back to you if you wake up, which is a kind of an really? interesting idea. Yeah. yeah, it's a very interesting idea. Uh, and um, I believe it's Kabbalistic is my guess, although I don't know deeply. But what this is all a way to begin to reveal is that I'm Jewish and that I'm a religious Jew I don't look like a religious Jew. If you meet me on the street, I don't wear a yarmulke, uh, the small hat that mm -hmm. um, might identify, or a large hat you might identify with visibly religious or observant Jews. I don't wear other clothing that would reflect that. Um, but um, in many ways, including the learning of Talmud, which is our set of holy books, I... Yeah. I am religiously Jewish and my household is religiously Jewish in many ways, though not all that you would normally recognize or think of as religiously Jewish. I'm on a journey. I grew up Jewish. I grew up a liberal type of Jewish, which is often called in America Reform Jewish, although we were loosely affiliated with Reform Judaism, which is a movement from the 19th century uh, American history. And I became more interested in Judaism as time went on. I My family's always been interested in Israel and uh, has had a long connection to the state of Israel. And I'm a Zionist, uh, which is not something that all Jews feel about themselves, but it's something that I do feel about myself. And my religious interest in Judaism was always there, but grew in the last number of years. And became more and more part of my life, I'd say, for five years ago when I finally decided to uh, take some space and do something about the curiosity and interest and passion that I have felt. And I have evolved my thinking and feeling and journey of learning and faith since then. Faith is not something, religious faith, is not something that Silicon Valley 
often prizes. I'm going to say something that might sound funny to you, but Silicon Valley is a very mm. deeply religious place. What do I mean by that? <laughs> Silicon Valley has a religion of its own, and I don't mean scientism, I don't mean futurism, I don't mean technology solutionism, uh, but it's the closest, the last one, it's the closest to technology solutionism. We are very convinced that we're right in Silicon Valley. We are very convinced that we can solve the future. There are taboos, as there are in religions. You can't talk about certain things. And there are topics that we all have to talk about a lot, by contrast. There are phrases we have to utter a lot ritualistically. And there are ways we have to clear our throats ritualistically in Silicon Valley. So although Silicon Valley is a deeply religious place, though it would never admit that about himself, in a very humorless way, it might admit that about itself, religious faith is something that is kind of a sign of unintelligence in Silicon Valley. They kind of dismiss it as something that's cute or somehow idiotic. In fact, hmm. um, you'll often get a kind of sneer here. Um, I'm not secretive about my religion. Nobody would expect me to be. I don't advertise it um, unless I feel I must. And I certainly don't proselytize um, because it's not something that I have an interest in doing. I don't bring up my religious interest or affiliation all the time. I did in our pre-interview because I understand that you also have an interest in faith, but we don't need to talk about that unless you wish to. So I thought maybe you and your listeners might take an interest in this part of my life and my journey. What I want to say is that I believe that religion and perhaps the, the older religions, I don't know, hmm. offer a value system and a point of view that allow you to interpret the world based on enormous, not just belief, but also aggregated wisdom of centuries and millennia that allow you to understand that not every moment is transcendent, but that some are, that not uh, that mammon is not uh, the only thing in life, <laughs> that uh, when <laughs> you meet characters mm -hmm. who look like they could be out of a biblical story, it's probably because they really could be out of that biblical story, and you might as well try to do some pattern matching to verify whether you think they are. <laughs> that very little is new under the sun, perhaps nothing is new under the sun, and that we can learn from the experience of forebears who probably wanted us to learn the lessons of their wisdom. So I think that, uh, I, I don't think that religion needs to be in business all the time or in medicine all the time or in law all the time. And I also don't think that religion's only value is teleological. I don't think it has to be that you have faith because it makes you stronger in business. In fact, I would reject that view. Uh, many of the most successful business people I know are, are distinctly a-religious, <laughs> Jono. Um, but I do think that it ought to be something we can talk about, not heavily, in the yeah. same way in business, in our business lives, in the same way we talk about other parts of our lives that are important to us in our business, in our daily lives. And it should not be required and it should not be shunned. And so, and by the way, when I when I whisper the quiet part out loud about this, as I do mm. often, 
uh, in my daily life, I'm frequently met with nodding heads in agreement in the room because others are afraid to say that they believe in God. They are afraid yeah. to say that they want to believe in God. And mm. I say, you know what? Be brave, man. If this is you, this is you. And if it's important to you, you're going to do something about it. And if it's not, then they'll do other things. And that's also okay. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing because I do uh, believe that um, your, you know, our values, beliefs uh, are really, it, when we're sharing our and we're sharing our story, you know, you're sharing your story, Michael's story. That's why I love that you're talking about this. And um, so connect it to investing and uh, to entrepreneurship and to also, I know I, I love, uh, one of the things that leaders are most interested in is sometimes sometimes they talk about work-life mm -hmm. balance, mm -hmm. work-life integration. I talking about is how do I how do I lead myself <laughs> uh, and and do a good job in living my life so that, that I don't burn out as as well you know implement um great leadership principles whether I'm managing a bunch of people or I'm, I'm I'm leading a startup or I'm investing so what does it look like for you you know in terms of the your faith and how you've got that and, and um what, what does it look like for you in every day in how you lead? The way you invest, and, and does it? I'll start by I'll start by uh, going back to my childhood because there was an important lesson in my childhood, and I know you appreciate this way of talking about oneself. So my father had his office in our apartment. It was not a huge apartment in New York, but he put his office and his sometimes he had staff in his office or if he was working on a job or a film in our apartment so there was always work integrated into the life of the house my mother saw patients she was a shrink she saw patients in her office in the apartment which by the way was often the same office my father used and sometimes she would see patients at night when we were having dinner so we would have to like lock ourselves in the kitchen and my mother would see patients in her office and we were not allowed to leave the kitchen because in order to leave the kitchen, we'd have to walk past her office and she didn't want her patients to know <laughs> or to feel imposed on. So this idea that there's a, this idea that there, the office and the work and the, the light, the life of the family were all in one place was very much part of our daily and nightly life growing up. And this led me to feel like there was no, I never, it never occurred to me that there was a work-life separation or that these are things that should be separated. And so my life, and I have a family, my life is very much integrated into my work and my work is very much integrated in my life. And of course, that's not the, the only possible way of working. And it's not to say that picking up your phone and checking an email while you're at dinner with your family is the right way to go about things. I think that's not the right way to go about things if you can avoid it. Uh, and of course, today is a much more connected world than we had when, when I was growing up and so forth and so on. So you need to be able to turn off and turn on. And there are judgments we all have to make of that type. But I can say to you that in, in the same way, uh, one of my favorite movies is Chariots of Fire, uh, which is about a, uh, a Jewish runner and a Christian runner, basically, the two heroes of the film. And in one important scene, the Christian runner tells the Olympic Committee 
uh, the British Olympic Committee that he cannot run in the heats because the heats are on Sunday and he won't run on the Sabbath. And the Prince of Wales and the Lord of, you know, Ashingdon or something are trying to convince him to run on Sunday. And he says he just can't. And Lord Lindsay walks in, who's a teammate who happens to be a, a, an aristocrat, and says, why don't you just run in my event instead of your event, and then you don't have to run on Sunday, and you can run and, and compete. And he says, yes, oh, what a great solution. And then the following, the following sort of snippet is that Lord so-and-so says, the other Lord so-and-so, well, I thought this, this guy had us beaten, this Christian had us beaten. And he says, yes, and thank God for that. He says, well, what do you mean? He says, we were trying to separate this man's faith from his running in the same way that someone else might try to separate a limb mm. from his, his running. You can't run without your limb. You can't be without his faith. This man was made of his faith in some sense. And so you can't separate these things in, in that way. And so I think that, it, it, you know, trying to sort of carve out or separate or create distinct lines that are unblurred between this part of your life and that part of your life, it's very hard. Certainly you have to in some, some moments in some parts of your life. It, that's understandable. We also have to live here. But for me, that's, that's, that's part of it. I will say something else to answer your question more concretely. Hmm. Is that is that people who believe in certain religious principles i would say perhaps in some religions more than others i don't know understand that there is right and there is wrong and not everything is a question of two equally valid sides or even close to equally valid sides there is evil in the world and there's good in the world and there is really bad behavior and there's very good behavior in the world and by the way Lord knows, even the best of us will do the wrong thing sometimes. Okay. But I can tell you that when I meet entrepreneurs who I think are really crappy people or working on something that's really bad for the world, even if I think they're really good business people, I just can't bring myself to invest in what they're doing. And... You might have a different definition from what is what is a bad thing for the world or something, uh, and I might have a different one. But these are these are this is an important. I've learned it's an important differentiator between myself and some others, and a pretty wide swath of investors who will do whatever they have to do to make a financial return. And I think that is a differentiator. And also, I think it has to do with the people you hire and. And what you esteem in the people you hire. You know, uh, I've worked with some amazing people I hired. I brought them up from pups, so to speak, groomed them, helped them get much better, much better. And they would say this. I said, Michael, you know, I'm done here. I need to go do my own thing. And I, I hate to leave you, but you're on your own again. And I got to go do what I got to go do. And I say, thank you for telling me to my face. I would love to help if I can. How can I help? in general. And then once in a while, I've been met with some people who mm. were doing some stuff behind my back. And then one day revealed that they had spent time on my payroll working on another company for a year, year and a half. Or, And I said, well, why, did you just, why didn't you tell me? Like, why didn't you tell me? Like, mm. you know, like there are enough stories out there of people saying it to my face. And I said, yeah, man, <laughs> this is your movie. You know, um, how do I help? So, you know, I, I, I think that there are, not, not, there are people who are good people who make mistakes too. And not every, not every moment is, a, is an example of your whole life. But, um, but I, I have learned that there are just different value systems in the world. And 
And even if people who are adherents to a value system sometimes stray, at least they can they can rock back to that that mainline value system. And that's their day-to-day -day behavior. And I think that's more trustworthy in general. Yeah, and what I hear is that you have observed, and if anything, it's and again and again that a, a leader and personal values, that there are things, there is right and wrong. There's a decision that would be incredibly beneficial in a number of ways, wrong decision, that if someone has that type of compass, then that's a win. And if someone doesn't, that's incredibly dangerous. And for you, you're expressing that for you, that that really comes from and is linked to your faith. And so that's the connection I'm hearing. Um, which, which, which I agree I with. And it very well. Yeah, it's I not that people have to have well, a faith, it's, it's they have to have a compass. Faith is one of the one of the ways that you've seen people compass because they do have something deeper than themselves or higher than themselves. Regardless of what I think or feel, uh, I, I believe this, this is wrong here that, that should impact what I do. I think you're articulating it very well, and I'm going to add to it. The This compass or this code, having a code of some type, is very powerful, especially in moments of great tribulation in the world as we have today and as we have had in Silicon Valley. So let us, let us visit a topic of some moment at a high level. Um, in this moment in our commercial slash political slash cultural sphere, we are consistently, even in the West, violating one of the very core, very core principles that we all learned in elementary school and that we all agree, even now in principle, is core to our civilization, which is that you should be innocent until proven guilty and presumed innocent until proven guilty. What has happened now in the culture of commerce and other parts of our lives is that if someone who looks a certain way makes an accusation about someone who looks a certain way, a different way, often the accusation is believed and so readily believed that the person who's accused is canceled and pilloried out of town. Okay. And there might be historical reasons that are understandable for that, power imbalances and so forth. But the difference between an actual compass and a rental compass, and I'll expound on what that means in a second, the difference between having a code or a value system and a rental code or a rental value system is that the person who is in a position of authority to, to adjudicate and to decide what happens to the accuser and the accused in this delicate moment in a moment of macro tribulation is utterly unreliable if he or she is laboring under a rental code or a rental compass. So if your value system is ersatz, if your value system is whatever Twitter tells you it needs to be today in order to survive another day in business, then all you are is yet another politician who happens to be occupying a chair, taking up oxygen, that could be better occupied and used by a better person. 
And if instead you are someone who understands that there are actual values that we've worked hard centuries to earn and win, then you will have a greater chance of evincing the metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, the metal required to say, let us wait until this accusation is proved before judging the accused and ruining his or her life forever. And so this is so important today in a day of information sharing and social media. It is so important when this kind of guts is so rare that I would say wherever your code comes from, so long as it is a real code, it is not a fake code masquerading as a code. So long as a real compass, not just whatever you think you need to say and utter in order to survive this moment, then I think you are massively value added to our society. And if you're not, then I think you're just another lemming. Mm. And there are many lemmings in the world, but lemmings do not need to be in positions <laughs> of authority in general. I, I agree. And, um, you know, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny. One thing that you said there, a phrase that caught my attention, um, um, and you talked about it like being another, a uh, politician. Um, one of my favorite authors is Patrick, uh, Patrick Lentiani. He does a lot of work around organ. And I've always scratched my head about organizational politics. And he, he articulates, because why are there, it's, it's kind of like how, are, why are there politics? How do you, because anyone who's a team where there's politics, you, you feel like you're just, oh, it's one of the best feelings. A bunch of people where there's really minimal, um, or sometimes you feel like there's no politics going on. It's literally just let we can together and we've got each other's backs and his definition is time you tell someone what you think is going to get the best outcome rather than what you really think or how you really feel mm. and i love that definition because obviously like there's always moments of emotional intelligence where you go well <laughs> probably not helpful for me to say how i really feel because i'm a bit triggered right now and it's probably not rational that's not what he's talking about it's more it is, it is about, in an organization, how do we create a culture where uh, people can people can say what they really think and how they really feel rather than, um, you know, sitting in the meeting and planning, how can I put this across so that I, um, you know, more budget for my area rather than Bob over there because he's going to be, you know, it's, it's just a difference, but... I'm bringing it up because you've talked about it at that sort of math, which is like, hey, that, they, the problem with issues is that we feel like um, a lot of politicians are saying they're looking at the polls and they're going, mm, okay, what, what do they want to hear me say? And I think people are going, no, we want you to be, we want you to have strong convictions and tell us what they are. Um, and, and to stick to them. And, um, I, I, I think, um, I think it's really, it's really hard. Um, I look at people in history that we admire, you realize that the people that really did that had often a really hard time. And there was often a lot who were shouting them down. And, and uh, I can think of some people now that I really respect um are in sort of movements but they're speaking against aspects of it and really they have been for a long time and wow i have such 
question for that because I, I can think of one guy who, who um has really done the Christian um, um sort of uh movement in Australia very missional and a lot of, of just a lot of things about aren't really on his thing, thing is, is is often like he just he, he, he just comes back to um uh you he, know to what jesus, jesus was like and it's like what it was like but he does it again and again and again and he's he had so it on him but i i really respect that he year for two years he's been doing this which i think is an example of what we're this conviction of like for me this is what it's about he's been doing this for like 20 years and um oh, wow i respect that so much by the way i'll make a quip but you'll get it in a second um because you're you're describing someone i don't know who it is but at a high level you're describing a personality who is sort of difficult on sub levels but in some sense if you add a pain in the ass and great communication skills, you often get a great leader. <laughs> so if someone's asking difficult questions and is sort of being a pain in the tush to the people around him or her in a movement, but then can do it well and not just complain and, and consensus yeah. build or, you know, in the game of addition, add more people through good communication, you often have a leader. There's a there's a there's something I want to, you said earlier that with, with you mentioned this fellow uh, Patrick Lencioni who, whom, whom I did not know I just googled him while we were listening uh, listening to you um, to kind of bring it together one of the one of the the difficult things to do as a leader whether you're the type of leader that you described this fellow in Australia or for a sort of from within leader or you're a leader at the top of an organization as your organization grows you know certainly beyond a hundred people it becomes very difficult as the leader of an organization, set aside 200, 300, 400, 500, or far more, one of the things that's difficult is to get the people who work for you, maybe not direct reports, but including your direct reports, but others in the organization, to tell the truth about what they think is going well and going poorly. You just mentioned <laughs> this, because they, yeah. they think they're supposed to be doing certain things and saying certain things. So I have a very practical technique that I've used because yeah. I realized when the first company I started that got to 100 people got to 100 people, I realized that I didn't know what the heck was going on oftentimes in the organization. And so I, I took a page out of, I think, Sam Walton's playbook, which is managed by walking around. And mm -hmm. I'd walk around and I would say, I would ask people who were a couple, you know, more than, more than a level or two below my report structure, I'd, say, I'd ask them, hey, so-and-so, how's it going, whatever, how are you doing, what's going, how's so-and-so, how's, how's, so how's your so-and-so? And then I'd say, what's the dumbest thing we're working on? <laughs> or what's the dumbest thing you're working on? I'd ask the question. And it was kind of a startling thing, you know, to be asked that by the CEO, by the founder at first. And I'd ask with a smile, and they'd sort of look around uncomfortably, and then I'd say, no, come on, what's the dumbest thing we're working on? And then I'd get all kinds of answers, right? And I'd do this once a week, once a day, depending on what the schedule and travel schedule allowed. But this is what happened when I did that. There were foreseeable benefits and there were unforeseeable benefits. One foreseeable benefit was that I often learned that we were working on some really dumb things. <laughs> that 
<laughs> we were spending our time and resources in ways that were not worthy of the people I was talking to, right? To say, oh, well, okay, let's, thank you for that. Let's, <laughs> let's see if we can make that better. Let's see if we can prioritize your time better, right? Another um, unforeseeable consequence that I quickly learned was very valuable was that I would often learn through the answer I was given that in fact, so-and-so I was asking was working on something very important, but did not understand how important it was. And so we had done a bad job of communicating why his or her contribution was so essential to a bigger picture. <laughs> and one of the things that you know about, about inviting people to succeed, and it's very hard to do, it's not easy to do every day, <clears throat> is communicating with them why their contribution is so important. And so sometimes I'd be turned on to things that we're working on that were dumb and sometimes that were not dumb, but seemed dumb. And I'd be able to say, oh, well, let's, let's repackage this. Let's reposition this. Let's make sure that we redouble our efforts to communicate, including starting with myself, why this fits into that, why this puzzle piece fits in that puzzle piece to make a beautiful totality and a beautiful whole. And then, of course, there was the other benefit which is it just gets people feeling comfortable talking to you about silly things or about difficult things and that creates a culture where you can tell the boss the truth and yeah that's this that's is just so a very good. practical technique that your leadership audience might be interested in no i think they it's it's funny and um, elephants come up in the podcast um because oh interesting what i've yeah, yeah, yeah it comes up a lot and i always from chatting with all these different leaders from different sectors i'm always watching for one that comes up a lot and it's this this truth that i never realized i never really knew how to articulate it until i started this podcast actually and, and i've heard people describe exactly what you just described and it's this problem that when you start out in an organization you often get a manager doesn't you'll often have a manager who gives you all the things you don't want to hear in maybe an emotionally unintelligent format more feedback than you could ever want and it's in and and it's very hard I, I can think of a leader i had who really hit some things on the head but the way it was done was just like uh you know a complete shock to the system and so now i can see that and i go wow i'm so thankful for some of them the, the higher you go the more control you have over the feedback you receive and actually at the point where the feedback where say as a leader you're probably because you hopefully yeah, have great emotional intelligence to take some of that on. Now, important because instead of leading that one project, I'm now managing you know a thousand people. It's the time where more than ever, anything I'm doing and we're doing that can be tweaked. Multiplication effect of, of how it affects the whole organization. I'm in control of the feedback I am receiving, whether I like it or not. Is it or not? And that one time I shut down some feedback in a meeting and my okay well that's off limits um and so the just for leaders that i've heard is when you know the high responsibility how do you create authentic feedback and create a culture where people actually tell you what they think it's really hard it's hard to do it and it's hard to well you're giving a kind of even more sophisticated version of what I was trying to describe. And I think you're, you're right on the money. These are very difficult, uh, especially, um, especially for a leader, I think, 
getting constructive feedback or critical feedback is difficult or can be difficult in a group setting. So in an executive meeting or in, a, in all hands, it can feel embarrassing. It can feel like you're being dressed down in front of others if you're getting a certain kind of critical feedback or uh, constructive feedback um, emotionally unintelligently presented, as you said. And one of the one of the harder things to do is to either create conditions where that's possible or to, as sometimes is necessary, kind of ballerina your way out of that moment and invite that kind of feedback at another moment, but also allow that room to breathe. And then and then and then sometimes as a leader, sometimes as a leader, uh, whether the topic is you or something else, it is important to be able to close a topic and say, this is not what we're up for discussing right now. This is this matter is closed. This is off limits. And uh, it's not easy to find the perfect balance among those precepts as a leader. It is not easy to know exactly when to do this move or that move. But it is very clear that all such moves are necessary in their own moments and time and that any really good leader will know how to do all those things. One mm -hmm. of the complaints I hear about CEOs as they grow their organizations, most often, perhaps it's the moment we're in, perhaps it's the industry I'm in, where everyone's trying to be nice all the time. One of the complaints I hear most often is, oh, he or she did not know how to make tough calls and wanted the people who worked for him or her to like him too much or her too much and therefore was not willing to metaphorically shut or shut this down or shut that down. And the kind of the uh, unwillingness to commit the team to a certain direction and to close off other possibilities is one of the most hobbling mistakes that leaders make. They can do these things politely. They can do them firmly. Some people do them loudly. <laughs> Some do them nastily. But when there is a large organization and the boss is not willing to, even a small organization in some cases, but especially for a large organization, if the boss is not willing to foreclose certain avenues of discussion and exploration, then you have an organization that is truly thrashing, truly flailing, uh, because it's the opposite of the Michael Bloomberg effect. They don't know what they're supposed to do when mm -hmm. they show up. And everything is always yeah. on the table. And everything is recursively available for discussion and revisit. And that is truly helping. So, you know, this 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 podcast you've 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 grown is addressing one of the toughest topics in the world, which which is how to be a leader and what qualities it takes to be a leader. And the truth is that there are so many <laughs> that are required. Um, and not everyone does it the same way. I mean, look, you know, one of the things that's so funny about Silicon Valley, you'll appreciate this. You know, um, I often, I have a slide somewhere in one of the decks I present to entrepreneurs and investors and others and friends. I put a, I put a, I put a quotation from Jeff Bezos next to a quotation from Elon Musk, right? Two of the greatest entrepreneurs <laughs> alive. And Bezos says something like, I make one important decision per day at 
ten thirty-five a.m. <laughs> something like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> like that's, I mean, it's almost literally what he says, right? I'm sort of making a joke for comedic effect, but it's almost literally what he says, like, no, right? I've heard, I've heard that, that what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So I know what you mean. Yeah. Exactly, right? It's like, a like late morning, I make one difficult decision and that's it. The rest of the day, I don't make decisions. And Elon Musk says, I make seven to 10,000 decisions every day. <laughs> Something like that, right? And the, like, the only way to grow a business and to succeed as an entrepreneur is to make as many decisions as possible as frequently as possible, which then add up to changing the arc of the company towards the brighter future, something like that, right? And so, you know, Silicon Valley is full of these religiously nonsensical principles. I think that Silicon Valley is a deeply religious place, and we have our priests and our, you know, our divinities, right, our angels and so forth, um, and, uh, and, 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 and pastoral types. And these are two of our heroes, right? Whatever you want to call them in our pantheon in Silicon Valley. And they have diametrically opposed advice. Now, if you ask them to sit down together, or if you ask them to sit down with you and you ask them what they really meant in a real, really serious way, you would understand that their views are probably not incompatible with each other, right? That 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 when you kind of detweet their leadership principles and you turn them into more intelligible, intelligent versions of those utterances, it might be a very good idea to make a decision of some import in the late morning so that you have time to digest it and then people can digest it for the rest of the day. And it might also be very important to make many, 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 many micro decisions throughout the day so that you can change the arc of your company's narrative to its better future. Or it might also mean that these are two different guys who have wildly different styles of leadership that both obviously are well. And that, <laughs> that what is common between no, them no, is no. that they are both capable of making decisions, but in different ways. And they telegraph them in different ways. And so, <laughs> um, right? Right. And so there are all these different things. By the way, it's not just these two quotes that you can point to. There are other quotes and other topics of leadership in Silicon Valley that we could uh, point to that are also seemingly diametrically opposed, right? Um, so, so I, I think I think that behind the scenes there is still a need to make decisions. There is still a need to be willing to make tough decisions because, by the way, making tough decisions the best part of making tough as a leader for everyone is that it removes the awful burden of making the, the self-same decisions from the people who work for you, which means that you have the burden and the privilege of being the blamee for those decisions. And you relieve the responsibility of being the blamee from the people who work for you, whom you enable to succeed because you've made the tough decision that gives them cover for executing on that decision. Right? And so, Right. Mm. But so many leaders now in Silicon Valley, so-called leaders, maybe in Silicon Valley, maybe elsewhere, they want the ice cream, but they don't want to have to take the blame for for <laughs> the, the tough stuff. Right. Right. And so, you know, I mean, look, let, let's face it. Right. Steve Jobs, by reputation, was not the most likable or nice fellow and was autocratic and so forth and so on. Right. That, no, no, it's not controversial to report these things. Right. This is often discussed Steve Jobs. Right. And then you have a leader like Mark Benioff, who, as far as I can tell, 
based on I've met him a few times. He's lovely in person, as far as I can tell. Wants everyone to have like barbecue and swimming with dolphins kind of life experience, right? And wants yoga rooms in his buildings and stuff, right? So all these different types <laughs> yeah. of styles, right? And so it's not like yeah. you have to have a flat organization or you have to have an autocratic organization, right? I mean, I often say something. This is where I agree with Elon Musk. I often say that I believe in in micromanagement. In fact, I believe in something called femto management. And if you if you look me up, you can see femtofilm.com. I sort of made a parody about this. I believe in really closely managing things until that project or that department or that employee or that team has decided has shown that they can succeed in this way without that type of culture building slash supervision. And then you step away and they manage themselves with the opposite of micromanagement. And um, I don't think it's a bad thing to be a micromanager in the beginning because you have a vision, you have an idea of what you want, you have a clarity about what you want. And part of your job is to get everyone on the same page. Now, if you're still micromanaging them a year later, someone's doing something wrong, probably you. Either you need to step off probably and give people their freedom and space, or you need to get a better team that's stronger and able to channel those processes and that vision and make it their own, inculcate it, assimilate it, grow it, make it better, make it superior, make it their own, and then bring, bring what they can bring to the table that you could not yourself as their boss. And that should happen quickly within weeks or months. Mm -hmm. But it's not embarrassing to be a very close manager in the beginning. And it's not noble to be a close manager later. And by the way, other people have other styles. They really do. But what I'm saying is that this is a style that I believe in that I think no one should apologize for if it works for them. Yeah. I, I, one thing I found um, hilarious about your, uh, that, or, you know, the two quotes that you share with, with people is how much you mentioned that it's its own religion. It just reminded me of that exact same, those same differences playing out in, in literal religions and, and how people, I mean, um, religions have learned from each other over, um, you know, one, one at the time was everything to them, but now we look back and go, well, you know, and it's kind of like, um, you know, uh, when someone should be baptized and it's like a whole, you know, we completely split into different movements because is it this at this age? Another says you baptize at that age. And it just reminded me of those two quotes. Um, even within uh, literal religions, there's that same um, uh, sort of like, we like to think there's only one way, but there's often two different fields of thought, even within that one movement. Um, so it was just funny how it reminded me so much of that. Now I'm just looking at the clock and I've had so much fun chatting with you, Michael, that I've, I've taken us way over time, uh, which I'm, I'm very glad such a joy. What I'd love to do is invite you back for a part two um, down the track point uh, and we can chat a bit more about, you know, we, we've focused on, on a couple of things, but um, I would love to express with you another time where I ask you a bunch of questions about books that you've given sort of things um, so yeah the invitation's there to come to come back at some point let's do it i say let's do it we did a good job and you were a great host i had a lot of fun and i hope that you get a lot of great comments and maybe some challenging ones after this podcast <laughs> is uh drops and i hope to come back and talk with you more Jono.
Yeah, it's been it's been a pleasure. For those who have loved hearing, uh, you know, your thoughts and and they want to find out more about you and and also about um, heroic ventures, where can people find you online, Michael? Well, there's not a lot of heroic ventures, and that's deliberate, but you can look at furtick.com, which is my last name.com. You can also look at michaelfurtick.com, which is my full name.com. Uh, and I'm also probably most easily found or accessible on LinkedIn. Yeah, great. People people you there and wonderful. Well, I want to thank, thank our listeners you. for uh, uh, for staying about a, a myriad of different things. This has been, I, I think this will be one of the just because I love a bunch of different topics that we've talked about all in, all in one hour. Um, don't forget, on our White Leadership Podcast and Leadership Question of the Day podcast, there are two other places in your leadership. But I want to finish by saying a massive thank you to you for your time for really uh, putting your money pages and that's to talk about faith in a leadership podcast, which I think is good. I, I just uh, I admire that. So, uh, for just being so much fun, I, I really have I'm had to go. Oh man, really wrap up. <laughs> uh, I've just I've just so enjoyed chatting with you. So, so thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast as much as I did. If you're joining us for the first time, don't forget to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there, including our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from all over the world in all different roles, in different industries, answer these seven questions on leadership and leaders give these in-depth answers around how they spend their time, uh, a book that's been significant for them. It's just a gold mine. It's completely free to access. So go to consultclarity.org and look for that. We'd also love to interview you about your leadership. I believe your experience, your life, your context means that you have advice on leadership that other leaders can learn from. Yes, you, if you're going, not me. Well, no, I really believe you would have something to add. So if you're looking for a way to give back, it's completely free to get involved. And we would love to interview you through the seven questions on leadership. You just go to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest or Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form and get involved. We have a free resource on our website called the Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook, 10 world-class leaders giving their thoughts on leadership, and that's completely free. It's available on our homepage, consultclarity.org, right at the top. So make sure you go and get that and download it today. And we have a free daily email that you can subscribe to. We send this out to over 15,000 leaders from around the world. And uh, it contains the highlights of content from our podcasts, our blogs, um, our books, books we're reading. It's got the best content and it gives you exclusive, limited, early access to our masterclasses, workshops, new products, special offers. It's all for our subscribers. You can go to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe and join 15,000 other leaders. 
And you know, my gift to you is to work really hard, particularly through the Leadership Conversations podcast. I have been blown away by the quality of the leaders and I'm learning as much as anyone in doing these interviews. So I'm having a great time. And my gift to you is to keep lining up the best leaders I can to invest in your leadership. Your gift to me, if you're finding this helpful, there is something that you could do that would help us out massively. And that is to write a review and to leave a rating for our podcast or wherever you're watching or listening to this. I can't tell you how much that helps us out. Also subscribe or follow. It really does make a difference in helping us to help more leaders become everything they're meant to be. Another thing that means a lot to me personally is when I see our community share our content. So if you do share this or any other piece of content on social media, then thank you and and please do that. And look for me, Jono White, or clarity and tag us in your post. Our team is always looking for posts to engage with from our community. And there's also a chance that we'll share your content uh, to go beyond and share it with our followers. Last of all, you can check out my book. It's called Step Up or Step Out, How to Deal with Difficult People Even If You Hate Conflict. I wrote this book because 50% of the coaching sessions I have with leaders, this topic comes up again and again and again. And it's this idea of how do I have this difficult conversation? How do I lead this person better when I'm finding them difficult? Or in some cases you look and you say, I think I might be leading a difficult person. They're just quite difficult to lead or I'm finding them quite difficult to lead. So there's a three-step process that I unpack in step up or step out. And the amazing thing, and I've literally done this myself, and I've heard it anecdotally from other leaders as I've coached them, is that if you follow this process, you will see that person step up and change their behavior or make a decision, which is to step out some of the time. Uh, 95% of the time, people will step up or step out in just four weeks. And I stand by that. It's uh, You have to read the book to understand, but uh, I really do believe in it, and I've experienced it firsthand. It works. So you can go to Amazon, look up Step Up or Step Out John O. White or store.consultclarity.org forward slash book. Well, thank you so much for listening. We're going to be back with a new episode next time of the Leadership Conversations podcast. And I hope today has helped you to take another step towards becoming the leader you're meant to be. See you next time.